Jimmy Morris, well on his way to another World Series title. 15 years ago. You got your shot at baseball. You got hurt. Jimmy Morris put his dreams aside. Coach. Counselor. Don't report that, Esther. I never do. But sometimes. Hey, coach, you want to throw? I'll throw a couple. Yeah, dad, bring the heat. When you least expect it. Oh, my God. <laughs> dreams come back to life. I threw today. How hard? Pretty hard. Anybody want to tell me how we lost that game? You quit out there. I'm talking about having dreams. You don't have dreams, you don't have anything. You're the one who should be wanting something more. Last time I checked, scouts aren't looking for high school science teachers. We start winning, you try out again. Are you serious? Yeah. All right. Yeah. To the district champion, ours. Now it's your turn, coach. It started as a simple bet. I promised to try out. It was this thing to get the kids to start playing. It became the most incredible true story. Rule number one is arms slow down when they get old. In baseball history. From the studio that brought you Remember the Titans. We've got an eight-year-old boy who waited all day in the rain to see his daddy try to do something that nobody believed he could do. Now what are we telling him if you don't try now? This spring. You bringing some kids? Besides your own? I'm, I'm here for me. For you. Jimmy, come on, you're up. Just a second. I'm not doing it. Don't hurt yourself. His dream was impossible. You the old guy? I'm the old guy. How fast were you throwing 15 years ago? 85, 86. You just threw 98 miles an hour. No. But his journey was extraordinary. To Coach Jimmy Morris, the man who taught us about wanting something more. Dennis Quaid. Do you know how many guys can throw the ball 98 miles an hour? Yes. Not many. The Rookie. Welcome to episode 13 of the Monday Morning Critic. Today we have a very special guest. He is Jim Morris of the 2002 hit Disney hit The Rookie. Jim, how are you, my friend? I'm great, Derek. How are you doing? Good, good. Jim, um, you're you were born in Brownwood, Texas, or Virginia? Because I got mixed things. I, I think it's Brownwood, Texas. If I have to choose between the two, uh, I got to Brownwood when I was 15. I was born in San Diego. My dad was a military guy, and we moved everywhere. And so every few months, we packed up and left for somewhere else. So San Diego. Is where I was born. They okay. stay in a zoo, but other people told me the naval hospital. <laughs> yeah, it's it's because I knew you. Your, your dad was a military guy, and you were all over the place. But it's really like it, it was like finding uh, the fountain of youth, trying to find out your like where you were born because you know dad had you moving all over the place. Um, I think I think the final stat was you went to thirty schools by the time you were fifteen. I did thirty schools. That's amazing, isn't it? Oh, I mean, how does how do you? I mean, forget the sports aspect of it. How do you deal with that on a you know just having a best friend, having a girlfriend, having you know you know all the stuff that people that you know don't move that much maybe take for granted. You know, I made a lot of friends through athletics through the years, everywhere we moved. But the one thing I was never good at, and it was because of my father, who said children to be seen, not heard. I never talked, so moving for me wasn't a big deal because I never had those lifelong friends. And so by the time we got to Brownwood and I could actually grow a little bit, 
and I have friends, but still even those aren't the friends that I have. The ones I made in college are the ones that I carry with me today and the ones in baseball. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Um, and and again, let's put the baseball thing aside. I mean, you're you were one heck of a football player. You know, in two thousand and five, I was doing a speech in Corpus Christi and this man came up to talk to me. And let's, I'm not being unpolitically correct here. It was a Hispanic Chamber of Commerce. Yep. And so there's one other white guy there. He comes up to me after the speech. He goes, do you remember me? I said, no, sir. I've met a lot of people since the movie. He goes, I was your football agent at Angelo State. I'm like, oh, yeah. He had, like, gastric bypass. He would lost, like, 150 pounds. He looked great. He goes, I came here when we found out you were coming here. I came here to ask you one question. I said, ask me whatever you want. He goes, in 1993, when the Steelers were going to draft you in the second round of punt and kick, why would you not call back? Get out. Said, what? Oh. And he goes, we called somebody. They told us they, you had 20 minutes. They said they would get you. You're out the field kicking. You didn't call back. They passed on you. Then they blackballed you. Oh, my goodness. And, and oh, my, I, that is an unbelievable. Like how, so you hear that. You're an All-American punter. Um, and were you All-American in punting, Jim, or was it just more than that? Was it kind of a couple things? I punted, I had 5-3 hang time, which is, you know, Reggie Roby, Ray Guy deal. And then I kicked off, and 85% of my kickoffs went through the back of the end zone. Wow. And so I was going to be drafted as a punter and a kickoff specialist. And I could kick field goals, but that wasn't, I wasn't really keen on that. Right. You know, kickers are kind of girly, but... <laughs> so um, punters get to light people up once in a while, so that was cool. So I have to ask, do you throw left and kick left, or do you, do you kick right? Or do you kick right? Oh, I was a lefty. Wow, so lefty down the middle. You would have been an ideal punter for Bill Belichick. We, I live in Massachusetts, and I don't know how you feel about the Patriots, but he loves, loves lefty punters. I'll tell you this. I appreciate Bill Belichick and the way he coaches because I'll tell you what, he puts a team together and they play together. Yeah, they do. I mean, yeah. And, and you carried a lot of that into, into the teams that to, into the team that you know that you coached as well. So that's absolutely well said. Um, so... You eventually make your way to Hollywood, Florida, and as a freshman, you make the varsity, which is almost unheard of at the time. Is that yeah? Second freshman ever. The other guy was our shortstop, and we played softball and baseball together before that in a younger league, and we won state and almost nationals. Except we came against this team in New York in the championship game in the softball nationals, and they all had mustaches at thirteen. We're like, this is not real, but. <laughs> You know, they beat us, but other than that, we had a great team, and that kid was the first one that ever made it, and I was the second one in the history of the school. Yeah, and, and that's phenomenal. And once you get kind of settled there, here 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 kind of comes Dad's military life again, you know, to greet you, saying, you know, it's it's time to move on. He called me inside one day, and he goes, we're, we're moving you to Brownwood, Texas. And I said, why would we go there? I knew my grandparents lived there, but I'm like, that's not military stuff. He goes, you're going there. You're going to live with my parents. You're going to play football for the same coach that I played for in high school. I'm like, but that coach hates baseball. I mean, Brownwood High School didn't even have a baseball team. Yeah. But this coach is phenomenal in football, and he knew how to put together a team. And, and we were fantastic. And I can't argue that, but we had a philosophical difference. He said he'd rather watch grass grow than watch a baseball game. I'm like, uh, I don't know about you, dude. No, whoa. Yeah, that's not not very impressive statement at all. Um, you know, Jim, and I, and I hinted this at, at this before, you never, 
in your philosophy, and I'm going to get to this a little later. Your philosophy on sports is is phenomenal, and I, I love your I love your philosophy on dream killers, and I, I mean I, I love it. Um, and I, I kind of wanted to talk to you about you know you never really had a chance to be a kid, and, and you you made a kind of a statement earlier. You said you know kids are to be seen and not heard. Is that kind of something Dad says a lot to you as you're growing up? Yeah, and you know my wife is trying to get me to go into more stuff speaking. My dad was physically and verbally abusive, and you know there's some audiences I go, the bruises go away, but the words they stay. Yeah. And if you get told you're stupid enough and you're not worth it, you start to believe that. And you can either live up to or down to expectations. So early in my life, everywhere except on a ball field, I learned to live down to because that's what was expected of me, and that's all I wanted to do. Yeah, and and you had an awesome like you have these. You mentioned these three people in your life, and I'm going a little bit out of order here. You had. Your coach that you've already mentioned that was a really negative guy and did something really heinous to you, and I hope I have this right, where he kind of called a lot of the D1 schools and squashed a lot of your opportunity. Do I have that right, Jim? Yeah. Um, my test scores didn't come back. My grandfather had ALS my senior year. Okay. And I was torn about going to school. I took these tests and I'd actually won the state championship in football. Scores came back. My counselor told me I wasn't very smart, and I'm like, great. And then the coach goes, you have scholarship score you want to. You'll never make it in baseball. Give it up. And at 18, you're like, oh, I know more than you do. And I'm like, I'm playing baseball. There's nothing you can do about it. And I was wrong. You know, he knew every coach in the country. And he called them all and said, he's going to steal your scholarship to go play baseball. And so they yanked him. Jeez. And then you have this awful guidance counselor that says, the worst things to you and, and gives you virtually no hope for the future because I, my, your, your life is obviously much different than mine, but I kind of had a guidance counselor that did the same thing. And if you don't mind talking a little bit about what that guidance counselor said to you, Jim, um, I, I, I think they'd love to hear that. Absolutely. You know, I don't know if you're using negative psychology or what, but it didn't work on me. And he told me my scores, and he goes, what are you going to do with your life? And I said, well, I'm going to play baseball. And he goes, I hope so. You're too stupid to go to college. Ugh. And I thought, dude, you're here to help me. What's up with that? Yeah. And, you know, I tell audiences everywhere I go, but the last I heard of that guy, he wasn't working with kids. He's no longer a counselor in high school. He's working in a movie store, and he's reading a movie about my life to other people. <laughs> so what do you know? <laughs> I love that. That is awesome. And um, so – you definitely prove these people wrong, and I love that. Um, you had there was one more person, I think. Um, you have, um, I think it was the athletic director, and, and I'm a little bit ahead because I do want to talk about the, your high school coaching um, aspect of your life. You, the athletic director, I think it was at was it at that school or was it while you were playing that was really negative? It was at Reagan County High School. Okay. Me. Yeah, and he was kind of a. Um, some of the things he said were not very pleasant. If, if I'm Wording that uh, he was a bully like my dad, and he wanted to push me down. And basically what it came down to was in 99, where the start of the movie takes place, he pulled me aside on my way to practice one day to tell me, you have taken these kids as far as you can. Their parents are losers. The kids are losers. They don't know how to win. You can't teach them how to win. You may be one of the best baseball coaches I've ever seen, but you're always going to come in last to people like me because I know how to step on people, and you're too nice. I just sat there going, wow, and they put you in charge of everybody. Jeez. And the problem with that speech was that two of my kids were behind the lockers where I couldn't see them. And so before I get to the field, the whole team already knew what the guy in charge of, not only all the coaches, but all the kids thought of them. 
Yeah, that makes sense. I'm right back where I was two years before when I took the job. These kids were like, coach, people come through on the way to somewhere else. Jeez, how awful is that? I mean, these three people must have, like, grown up in the same, like, they're pretty much of the same ilk, and they they get satisfaction seemingly out of making people feel awful. And there's a lot of these people out there, you know. And and, and your speeches, you call these kinds of people dream killers. Is that kind of an accurate saying? Absolutely. I call them dream killers. I say that people are dream killers for one or two reasons. They either try to do something and they failed at it, or they just want to tear you down so you can't achieve yours. Yep, well said. And that's how I see it, and that's how I've, you know, I've lived a lot of life. And there are a bunch of people like my father out there who want to see people burn, and I just don't get that. Uh, Jim, how does your rapport, does your rapport with your dad, did it ever improve? Did it ever... You know, get. I, I know some of the stuff you're saying. Um, does it? Th- th- have you ever gotten to a point where you're? I don't want to say at peace because I don't want to minimalize what you've been through. Does it ever improve at all, or is it kind of something that's always been a hurtful place for you? I did something my pastor told me to when I got remarried. He goes, "You don't have to keep them in the priority they're in, but you need to make amends for you." And well. so I apologized to my dad. And all he ever told me was it was never as bad as you thought it was. Mm. I thought, that's funny. You're telling me how I felt as I grew up. That's really not cool. Yeah. And, you know, then last year my grandmother dies, who I, who I grew up with. My grandmother my grandfather, she passes away at 98. And at the funeral, I went up to him just to say, I'm sorry, your mom died. And he goes, don't you ever blank and talk to me again. I'm like, whatever, dude. Wow. Wow, and and you you had a and, and I, I'm I know I'm right with this. You had a, a wonderful rapport with your grand. Your grandfather's a stand up guy. Like he's one of the most well thought out people. The way you talk about him, I think I've ever heard of. I mean, he's really good with how he approaches life. Is that a fair assessment, Jim? Absolutely, the hardest working, most big hearted person I've ever seen in my life. My grandmother was the same. Ernest was six three. My grandmother was five foot three, but together. They turned my life around. At a time when I could have gone totally off the charts at 15, they pulled me back in, and it started with two lessons. If you do it, you own it. And if you always tell the truth, you don't have to remember what you said. And from there, we moved on. Mm, how great is that? And there's a great story, and I, I don't know if you want to tell this, but your grandfather owned a, like a, a, shop, a clothing store. Is that is that a fair? I think it was a clothing yeah, store. Yeah, Tiny Little Brown with my grandfather had Ernest Morris menswear. And he had bought it when he got back from World War II, started it up. And he was just the most amazing person with people. Yeah. Like, first of all, he could walk in, and he, people would walk in, and he would go, they were this size, that size, and that size. And sure enough, you know, somebody would measure them, and they were exactly that size. But people came into him for his advice all the time. And he had a way of telling you the truth that didn't crush you. He would give you three or four options in which he thought you would be good at, and then you'd walk out of his store feeling high because you knew this wasn't going to work, but maybe these will. And so you had another road to go down. And he was just amazing with people. And, you know, one day at, you know, 9.05 a.m., right after the store opened, this lady walks in the store, and she's got on overalls and boots, and obviously the smell of the boots. She worked in the pig farm, and all the other men about his age saw her. They were having coffee in the back and talking. They looked at her. They ignored her. My grandfather saw this. He walks out, waits on her, treats her like a human being, like someone should be treated. Before she left his store, she bought 15 suits for every person in her family, paid in cash. Hmm. And he walked back by me and said, Jimmy, it doesn't matter what color you are. It doesn't matter what language you speak. It doesn't matter if you're a ditch digger or you're the president of the United States. 
we all bleed red. God sees all the same. That's how we should treat each other. Yeah, what a what a sweet sweet guy. And and, and there's one more story that you told, and it was um, towards I, I believe the end of his life, where um, you you had kind of thrown not God in his face, but kind of like what kind of God? You know, you said something to that effect, and he kind of had a reply. Do you, remember, do you know the story I'm talking about? Absolutely. You know, when I was 18, you know, everybody's been 18. You know everything at 18. Yep. And as you get older, you get dumber. But <laughs> in the middle of ALS, he and I are in the kitchen one night. And by this time, he's in a wheelchair. He has hooked up the oxygen. He stooped over. I'm 18. I've got my whole life in front of me. I look across at him. And I was mad. I didn't understand how someone who had done nothing but nice things for everybody their entire life could be stricken with such a disease. And so I did what I thought I could. And I threw his faith back at him. And I said, why did God do this to you? This is not fair. You've done nothing but great things your entire life for everybody you've ever encountered, and this has happened to you. This is not fair. Why did God do this? And he took in some oxygen. He looked at me real slow, and he goes, Jimmy, who do you think you are? I've worked my whole life to get to where I'm going. Where are you headed? Mm -hmm. And I was just stunned. He carried that disease with a grace and dignity that was unbelievable. I thought I would be curled up in the bottom of a closet just crying, unable to come out, but not him. Yeah, yeah. What a what a what a amazing, amazing guy. Absolutely, from what you said. Oh my goodness. Um, so you, you kind of um, you have a great rapport with your grand with your grandfather, and you you kind of move on here. Talk about you, you, and we'll get kind of out of the family a little bit. You get drafted by the Brewers. You're taken in the first round, fourth pick. I mean that that screams that they think you are you know a talent and a half um by all means um talk about what that feels like uh jim you get drafted that high how do you feel what, what are you thinking at the time well when i was 18 i thought i knew everything you should have seen me at 19 <laughs> because the week i turned 19 i got drafted in the first round by the brewers they gave me thirty-five thousand dollars to chase my dream and i thought i am rich and you know for a kid who never had any money for nine months i was rich and my father could have said a lot to me the last time I left Brownwood. Be careful, good luck, I hope you make it. All he can muster is do not take that money and go buy a little red sports car. So after I bought the little red sports car, <laughs> I drove to Phoenix where he had spring training. And on my way, and just to, you know, I don't push my faith on anybody, but I've got a great deal of faith because of my grandparents. Yes. And I know this for a fact because my grandfather taught me God has a sense of humor. Yeah. So on my way to my first spring training in my little red sports car at 19 years of age, I drive through Big Lake, Texas. And I thought, who would live here? And God remembered that. Because 15 years later, that's where I live. <laughs> that's great. And, and you are somebody who definitely is... Uh, you you are very big into your faith. You you are big. You are a very religious person. Is that a fair statement? Uh, I don't like religious. Religious... Religiosity has killed a lot of people in this country. Yeah. And in the world. Um, I would say faith-based. Yes. Grace and humility. Yep. Um, a lot of faith. And that's something that you could teach anybody, no matter what they believe, what they... I mean, faith is something that is, like you said, it's kind of... It's universal. It's hard not to, ha as a human being, have faith in something. You know what I'm saying? It's nothing... You, you can't write off faith. Is, does that make any sense? I mean, I think you have to have faith in some level in life. You can hope for whatever you want to, but unless you have faith, you're never going to achieve anything. You have to have faith that you can get something you think is unattainable now, whether 
you need an education or whatever because you've got to go to school. You've got to get that education. You've got to do something. So you got to have faith in yourself that you can do it. But I just, you know, I know that I've not done anything on my own. It's all been God. And when I came back at 35, throwing 98 to 102, it wasn't anything I'd ever done at 18, 19, after 88. So what happened those next 17 years? Yeah, I I completely agree. And, and to make that story even more to your point, you had a large. Didn't you get some muscle removed out of that shoulder, or is that the, that was the left shoulder, right? My left shoulder, I had a bone spur that had a fork in it. Part of it had messed up my rotator cuff. They had to reshape my joint to make it fit. The other prong on that bone spur frayed eighty five percent of the muscle in my deltoid on my left shoulder, and so they cut eighty five percent of the muscle out of my arm. And seven years later, I'm throwing 100. That's unbelievable. I mean, that, yeah, I mean, that doesn't, it, it does, by all science, I mean, and, and I know you were a science teacher, that doesn't add up. It doesn't add No, you know, everybody wanted to know what I concocted in my chemistry class. I'm like, <laughs> dude, I didn't do anything. <laughs> yeah, that, 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 if, if that doesn't scream faith or, or something more than, you know, science, then I don't, I don't know what does. I mean, that's... Um, so, so then you kind of, you, you, are drafted by the Brewers, you, you have time with the White Sox, then you have like a, you have a gap where now you become, you know, you're, you're the science teacher, you're the baseball coach. Talk a little bit, little bit, Jim, about that time of your life. You know, the part where we watch, you know, the rookie, we see you have this wonderful rapport with these kids, you're teaching them baseball, you're teaching them life lessons, you're teaching these kids how to be good human beings, not just good baseball players. It all goes back to my grandparents, and, you know, I've been told I was dumb my whole life by everybody except my grandparents, and then when I quit baseball the first time to go back to college, my first semester in school, my anatomy professor tried to talk me into going to medical school, and I'm like, but I'm dumb. And he goes, dude, there are 20 people in this class, 19 are nurses, they all want to be your lab partner, add up. And I was like, dumbfounded, man, straight A's, honest fraternity, school was fun. And I thought, I've been put down, pushed down and talk down my whole life. If I had the opportunity to work with kids, I will never do that to them. And I didn't. Mm. And my approach was simple. Screaming doesn't do anything. It goes in one ear and out the other. Mm. Talking to somebody like they're a human being, that works. Mm. Man, that's well said. And um, how special is that that that, champ- that district championship you win in 99? You know, two things happened that night. I got to watch a group of kids celebrate an accomplishment that not even they thought they could accomplish. And two, everything my grandfather ever taught me came to a culmination that night because that's when I looked out the window of the bus I started it up and watched these kids celebrating with their parents. And I got everything my grandfather taught me in one second. Mm, That's great. It's not about me. Mm. It's about if I can help along the way and plug myself into, and that's a dream maker. That's my grandparents. Hopefully that's me. That's that group of kids now. It's just amazing that something I've learned back when I was a teenager came to fruition at 35. Mm. Uh, Jim, was it that group of kids that, um, did they hear a lot, you know, that they were kind of, they were they didn't mean much, they, they, they were, I don't want to say worthless, but they people kind of treated them similarly the way you were treated uh, in life. Is that is that accurate or am I off on that? totally accurate. I was the perfect person 
to be in that job with those kids at that time because I'd been through what they'd been through. Yep. And so for me to have the opportunity to lift them up, and I tell people, keep telling people how good they are until they believe it. Mm. And then when they believe it, they can do things they never thought they could do. And, and, and here's what I know about kids. I know kids do not want good things for people that aren't good people. So obviously you get across to them in the most positive way imaginable. They see this this role model. And they so they say to you, look, coach, you know, um, you know I'm making a long story short here. Um, you know, we've kind of won this championship. Now you have to fulfill your end. Um, so now talk a little bit about that and how it's important to you kind of cash in on your promise for these kids that have worked so hard for you. I show up to the tryout on June 19, 1999 at Howard Payne University in Brownwood, Texas with the Tampa Bay Devil Rays. And the scout just looks at me and goes, how many kids did you bring to the tryout? <laughs> and I looked down at my three kids who are eight, four, and one. And I said, I brought these. He goes, no, son, two tryout. And I said, well, let me explain something. I made a promise to a group of kids who do not believe in adults that they did something nobody thought they could do. I would try to do something I know I can't do. They lived up to their end. I'm doing my part. Now, either you're going to let me throw or somebody else will because I'm going to find somebody and I'm going to live out my word because that's what I promised. Mm. Mm. And he goes, I'll let you try out, but it's because you're going to be last. They got to throw from the outfield. They have to hit. They have to be time a 60-yard run. He goes, do you want to run? And I said, I'm 35. I do not run. <laughs> and, you know, and I am sarcastic by nature. I just look and I go, I'm a coach. I'll help you time them. And he did not think that was funny. Yeah. And so I had to wait four and a half hours while everybody tried out. And he asked me how many pitches I needed to warm up. And I said, none. And so I wind up, I throw fastball as hard as I possibly can. It's a great pitch. So I'm, I'm like, I'm like, that's cool. Strike. And I look over the catcher's head and there's a gas away. The scout shaking his radar gun violently. And I thought, I do not even throw hard enough to register on the gun. And, you know, about everybody else do like 20 pitches. When I get up to about 60, I'm like, what is going on, man? I'm sweating. I'm 35. I'm fat. This is not funny. And then he has a guy who's ready to go home, pull his bat out to get in the box. And the guy looks back and he goes, you want me to get in the box? And then right then, I think it hit me. I'm doing pretty well. Yeah. Wow. It was just. It was just amazing because those kids saw something in me that even the doctors said would never, ever happen again. Again, again, we go back to the concept of faith. And I believe faith plays a huge part in a lot of this stuff, Jim. Um, I, I just there's, Absolutely. There's no other explanation for it. There's none. Um, nope. Let me ask you, and this is kind of a, I mean, I, I, I know baseball well. I don't know 98 or 100 mile an hour fastball well. Um, does it have a sound that like an 80 mile an hour, like, like, do you know when somebody's throwing 98 just by listening? Does it have a, a pop that maybe an 85 mile an hour pitch doesn't have? The, the best picture I can paint is you can see it jumping out of somebody's hand. It's not like they're throwing it. It's like it's just, it's flying out of their hand. And, and when you're throwing it, you just feel it come off your fingertips and you're like, that's gas. Yeah. And you just, you know. And there were people who would come, I think the third day in rehab camp in Florida after I signed the contract, all the big wigs from the big league team came down and they're like, let it go. And so I'm throwing the bullpen and they're like, wow. And I thought, those 
kids knew something, man. When I pushed in, they pushed back, and look where we are now. Yeah, absolutely. And and so it's no fluke because then you fire off ten, ten balls that are between you know ninety eight hundred miles an hour. So you're you're proving that that you're you're completely the real deal. Absolutely, I'll tell you what a hundred looks like or sounds like. I'm pitching against David Segee when he could really hit, and my catcher John calls for a fastball. I throw it, and David Segee has this approach where he lifts his leg, takes a step, and you know, swing. He lifts his leg, and the ball hits the glove, and he just looks at the glove, and he looks at me, and shakes his head. Hmm. It's like it was on him so quick that he didn't have time to react. Yeah, he was a great hitter. He was a really good hitter, David Segee. Yes. Um, so two days later, I mean, so the movie, you know, the movie shows you pitching to Royce Clayton, but I have to say. Two days later, you're in Anaheim, and, and I hope I'm right on this. You face Mo Vaughn, Jim Edmonds, and Tim Salmon. Is that right? Yes, I did. And you set you set them down one, two, three, right? They that's is that how that unfolded? Yes, sir. It is. Yeah, that see to me that's I mean those are three of the, they, at the time those are three of the best hitters in baseball. I mean that's like twenty million dollars at that, which at the time is was was an unbelievable sum of money to pay a baseball player. And I have to tell you, it was so much more fun at 35 than it was at 19. If I'd have got everything I wanted to when I was 19, I'd have been a spoiled brat like a lot of these kids are. Mm. But at 35, having gone back and done the school thing and teaching and coaching and and life, you know, marriage, kids, all that stuff, I understood what it was to be there. And so, yeah, Tim Salmon, my third guy, I had him 3-2 and I threw a backdoor slider and struck him out. And he didn't like the call, and I just giggled as I ran off the field. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, you, jeez. And the one thing I didn't know is I didn't know that your, because in the movie they don't really hint at this at all, I don't think, is that your dad was, was signed by the Mets or drafted by the Mets, and before he gets to tryouts, he blows out his arm. I think that's right. Yep. He um, was playing a tackle football game after, right, right after somewhere right around where he was signing and he ended up having his arm stable and I don't know what happened the next thing I know from the story is he's in the Navy and he never got his chance which could explain why he was jealous yeah yeah that was, that was my next question yeah I, to- I, I agree with that I, I agree with that um, so you're watching the movie for the first time it's over what are your thoughts? <laughs> the truth they invited my wife and I out to Burbank to watch the movie before it came out. And it was in black and white. It had sound gaps in it. It mm. had cuts in it. And after it was over with, like three and a half hours later, we are like, what do you think? And I'm like, we set out in the heat in Texas for that. <laughs> you know? And then two months later, I'm, at, I'm in Nashville at the Gaylord in Nashville with religious broadcasters of America. And... I watched it, and then I had to get up and talk to him. And I'll be honest with you, I had to quit crying before I could get up and talk. Wow. Wow. So so they so they, they hit the nail on the head with your life in this movie. They did. They did a great job, and I appreciate it. And they could have put stuff in there about the divorce from my first wife and all that, but that was not important. Dennis was going through a divorce, so was I. And let's make it about the kids, and that's what they did. 
Now, do you guys still have a report? I saw something where you guys, where you saw him at, I want to say, a NASCAR event. Do you guys have any type of rapport? Um, or is it just kind of like you see him, you say hello on occasion? Or I've got an open invitation to his ranch up in Montana anytime I want to go. Wow. And we have to be flown in, so he said, I'll fly you all in. You can have the ATVs, the horses, whatever you want. Just watch out for bears. Wow, how great is that? He's a great guy. We had a lot of fun putting the movie together. And, you know, he'd film all day, and then he'd go play in one of the bars on 6th Street at night, and I'd go watch him. And it was just it was a lot of fun at that time. It was something that normal teachers don't get to do. Yeah, yeah. And he got a lot of your, because I was watching, you know, footage of you when you pitched. He got a lot of your little, I don't want to say ticks, because that's a stupid thing to say. A lot of your little... um mannerisms that you do when you're on the mound. He, he kind of nailed a couple of those. Yeah. One day we're, on, we're filming and he's twirling the ball. I go, what the hell are you doing? He goes, I know what you do. I actually had to go back and watch myself. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> I never even knew I did that. Whatever. <laughs> um, so, you know, you, you, you end up, you know, you're with the Dodgers, and I think it's your manager at the time is Jim Tracy. And, and this, they show this during the rookie. You have a, it's tough for you to be away from your children, your wife. Um, at the time, it was, it was, it's tough for you. It, it adds up after a while. Um, t- talk, talk to me about that, Jim. The, the the difficulty in being away from loved ones for for such a long period of time. Well, I'll tell you a couple of things were going on. I knew I was getting divorced. My son was Hunter was ten. And he called me halfway through spring training. He goes, Dad, how long are you going to be gone? And I wasn't used to being away from my kids. I love my kids. I cook for my kids. I take them to school. I pick them up. And now I am 1,300 miles away. And the other thing was, during that spring training, I start to notice that while I'm still throwing really hard, balls hit back at me. I'm not judging too good. Even coaches hitting ground balls to us. Even bunting drills. I can't bunt the ball. I'm like, what is going on? It took me 10 years to find out that diagnosis, but the deal was I walked in Jim Tracy's office. I said, I appreciate the opportunity. I'm never going to set the Major League Baseball world on fire at 37. I love you guys. It's a great organization, but my kids are more important. I'm going home. And this manager who we were going through some stuff in the clubhouse at that time with a certain player I will not name, Gets up, walks around the desk, he hugs me, he goes, if you ever need anything, you call me. I wish everybody was like you. Wow. And then he sent me through the clubhouse with the clubhouse kid, giving me helmets, bats, balls, jackets, shirts to give all the kids back home. I mean, it was just awesome. Oh, that's classy. That is so classy. Um, you, you, have, you have a lot of health kind of issues as... as um, you know, as your baseball career kind of progresses. And then in April 2013, I believe, you find something else out. Are you comfortable talking a little bit about this, Jim? Yeah. You know, for 10 years, well, in 2012 years, we changed the diagnosis. I kept having surgery. I had 30 surgeries since 2001 since I quit. Wow. And almost of them were nerve-related. We're like, what is going on? You know, the first thing that goes through your head is my grandfather had ALS. Oh, God, is that what I've got? And not that dramatic. I had Parkinson's. But still, the mind knows when something's wrong, but when the heart finds out, it's a different story. And so my wife and I sat in the office crying, but relieved. And um, 
two years of medications for Parkinson's that didn't work. My body didn't tolerate them. Made me sick. Made my stomach quit working. Screwed up my esophagus. They had to cut my stomach out. Um, they did deep brain stimulation or DBS surgery. And when I came out, the doctor told my wife, she goes, when I opened up his head, I found the perfect places to put the electrodes. There was two places that had incredible um, hyperactivity, and I dropped them in there. And I have to tell you, for five years before that, I couldn't taste, I couldn't eat. She was not having to travel with me because I couldn't button shirts or tie ties. And now I could do all of it. And they said there wasn't, all it would cure was the tremors and the walking problems, and that was about it. But it pretty much took care of everything. If you look at me right now, you go, there is no way you have Parkinson's. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, through the travel and everything, Parkinson's can take on so many forms in different people. One of the major things that most people have with Parkinson's is a fatigue factor that is on a cellular level. And, you know, people go, I am so tired. When Parkinson's people say that, they are beyond tired. Yeah, yeah, and, and I believe that. Um, and, and you're feeling good today. Um, life is life is good in that regard, and 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 things are good in that in that perspective. Absolutely, man. Walking eight miles a day and lifting weights. Yeah, I man, you're in phenomenal shape. Right yeah, you're in phenomenal shape. I was looking at something just recently. You're you're in great shape. Like you're in better shape than most people I know. I am probably in better shape right now than I was in my last year of baseball. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, man. And that's another thing, you know, faith and, 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 and faith will always get you through. And that's one thing you focus on that I love, man. I, I think that's a real, and then I'm not, I'm not going to say I'm the king of faith or whatever, but you know, it's an area I know I have to improve on as a person, but it's a big thing in a lot of your, your, your speaking and your messages. And, and I just, I don't, I don't want to beat a, you know, keep, you know, beating on this, but I, I just, I love the fact that you come from a place of faith. I just, I, I it's, it's really admirable to me. I appreciate that very much. You know, I have, there have been certain speakers bureaus that have gone, you cannot talk about your faith. You can't talk about your faith. Not in the secular world. You can't do that. And every time I talk about my grandfather, I talk about me. Nobody's ever complained. And I think if you're not pushing it down people's throats, going, this is what you need to do. And you go, this is what I did. This is what works for me. You can do whatever you want to do, but I'm doing it this way. I think people are okay with that. Oh yeah, you. I, I've se- I've seen many clips of you speaking. You are the furthest thing from forcing your beliefs down. You just describe it as as it applies to how you have have matured and grown as an adult. That's all you ever do. Thank you. Yeah. So um, let me ask it. Um, and I ask this to a lot of you know the people that I interview. Is there any do overs you have in your life, Jim? Overall, if there's is there anything that you know it could be baseball or anything? Is there a do over that you you look back and you say, you know what, I kind of wish I made choice A instead of choice B. Hmm. That's a tough question. Uh, I'll give you one example. Um, the football deal. If I'd gotten that call, I would have signed immediately. I wouldn't be married to whoever, who I'm married to now. I wouldn't have the kids that I have. I wouldn't be happy. My kids wouldn't be happy. I wouldn't have a movie. I wouldn't have a book. I would just would have played football, and that would have been it. Yeah. I never would have been a rookie. Yeah, that's that's well said, man. That is well said because we had I, I had a guest yesterday, uh, Vince Papali, and he was a he's a football player for the Eagles. 
And he kind of answered that the same way. He said, you know, if I made a different choice, um, it would have it would have had the ripple effect and it would have changed many other things that were favorable in my life. And that's exactly what you just said. Yeah. Um, you, you have a great story about your grandfather. I could not let this go um, about Tom Landry. Do you remember this? Oh, man, my grandfather would sing in the choir at church. And, you know, he loved the Cowboys. He loved Tom Landry because of his class and his character. And Tom Landry would drive down from Dallas and buy a hat from my grandfather and then wear him on the sideline. And, you know, if the Cowboys were kicking off at noon and the preacher's going a little bit too long, my grandfather would go, amen, and church is over, man, because we got to help Coach Landry win that game. And he just was a man who stood above other people. I'm striving to be like him, and he's striving to be like Christ. So I'm on the right track, I think. Yeah, Jim, you, you absolutely are. And I, and I have three quick questions for you, and you've been so patient with me, and I thank you so much. Jim, who's the best pitcher of all time, in your opinion? Nolan Ryan. Hard to argue that. Um, uh, who's the best, if you had to kind of pick a hitter? Is there a hitter you have, or are you just more kind of... A, a pitching guy. Best hitter of all time. You know, even before the steroids problem, Barry Bonds was the best hitter in baseball. Yeah, I I, I would agree. Hands, hands down. Yeah, I, I I would agree with that. Um, uh, without question. And, and you make a joke. Um, in, in your in when you speak about um, high school football in Texas goes from. August first to July thirtieth. I think that's it. Um, do you find that tech, that there's more baseball being played, or is, is it still pre- pretty much dominated by football? You know, football is still a dominant choice, but in baseball, since I've grown up, and now that I'm in my fifties, I've watched all these specialty leagues, and you know, Under Armour and Nike, and all these different tournaments where they invite kids who are up the upper echelon of baseball go and play and so these kids are playing 100 120 games a summer and most of these kids are either going to be hurt or they're going to be sick of the sport by the time they're 17 mm. and i don't i think a kid who plays more is more well-rounded has a better opportunity because the kid who's going to make it is the kid who's going to make it is the kid who's going to make it right right and they've either got it or they don't um i do have one last question jim um if if you were to a movie outside of the rookie, is there a sports movie that you connect with that's that that you like a lot? Um, and I'm sure you've been asked this a thousand times. Is there a sports movie that you, whenever it's on, you maybe stop whatever you're doing and watch it? A League of Their Own. Ooh, interesting choice. Good movie. Good movie. Well, my grandfather served in World War II, and when the men went to war, the women took over, and they played. And this game is used to a lot. Of our history, and I appreciate it for that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, Jim Morris, you are a classy man. You are a great guy, and I want to just thank you so much for giving me a moment of your time um, and and talking about your simply phenomenal life. Absolutely, Derek. I appreciate it, and God bless you for working with those kids every day because it's not <laughs> the kids you got to work with, it's the parents. And that's, and you know, Jim, I got to tell you, and that's kind of the reason that I felt like, um, Coaching was kind of, for me, getting sour at the end because it's never the kids that don't get it. It's always the parents. They don't. And that's kind of what soured yeah, it. That's, that's it with any coaching. 
every parent thinks their kid's going to make it to the big leagues or the NFL or the NBA, and the percentages are so small. Just let the kid be a kid and enjoy what he's doing. Yes, and that's a big thing you have in one of your um, in one of your uh, uh, speeches is let a kid be a kid, and it's so true and it's so universally. It should be preached and practiced a lot more than people are doing it currently. Don't you agree? Absolutely, it should. You know, and the pressure of you know AAU and the pressure of you know you got to get a full scholarship. I mean, it gets to a point where it's so over the top that you're almost you're you're smothering a child to a point where they're so frustrated and 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 have almost have anger and resentment later on in life. I think you risk a lot by doing that. Absolutely, do. Yeah. Jim, thank you so much. Uh, I want to thank you for being a guest on the Monday Morning Critic. Absolutely, Derek. Thank you. Yep. And that was Jim Morris. Um, just a very sweet guy. Um, guy with a lot of faith. Guy that's had a lot of things happen to him that are tough to explain, you know, using anything but faith. Um, what a wonderful life he has lived. And um, what a wonderful life he's going to continue living. So um, a big thank you to Jim Morris for taking a few moments out to join us on the Monday Morning Critic. Big fan of him. Big fan of The Rookie. One of the best sports movies ever made. Um, And that'll be it for this week's broadcast. I know I said I was going to release this in a week. I decided to upload it early. I think this is a great interview. Give you guys a chance to listen to this. Um, love a lot of what he had to say. He's very honest about his personal life. He's very honest about what he's accomplished, as he should be. And if you do get a chance, um, many of his speaking engagements, if you have, to, if you get to go to one in person, I would recommend it. But if you get to you know, look at one on YouTube, he's really good. He, the way he breaks things down, the way he speaks to people, he's very talented, very gifted. Um, and uh, I just want to say that you know, The Rookie came out in 2002, this movie grossed $76 million, which is phenomenal for 2017, never mind 2002. You know, it's special in a plethora of ways. I mean, $80 million gross is amazing. Um, I did want to say that these two guys, um, what we see is a snapshot of their lives. You know, we see Invincible, we see The Rookie, two great movies but these guys have a lot more to offer the world, you know, and that's what I want people to see. You know, yesterday it was with um, Vince Papali, you know, you, you don't see in the movie that he fights his way through cancer, that he has a great family, that he continues to be close to the community, that he continues to do all this wonderful charitable work. You don't see that. But these guys continue to live productive, fantastic lives. Jimmy Morris is a phenomenal speaker. He does public speaking. He is fighting his way through Parkinson's. He's living a great life. You know, he's, he's getting things accomplished. He's making people feel good about themselves. You know, he's taking his experiences and kind of saying, you know something, if, if this can happen to me and I can get past this obstacle, you absolutely can as well. He has so much great stuff to offer. And if you get a chance, like I said before, to see some of his stuff on YouTube, absolutely do it. But these guys beat obstacles their whole lives. And now they continue to... to to still overcome obstacles. Like, what more do you need in life to not be inspired by people than these two gentlemen we've had on the Monday Morning Critic the last two days? You know, first with Vince and now with Jimmy. They're just two great people that continue to accomplish great things, continue to lead by example, and that is to be admired, it's to be adored, it's to be respected, it's to be, you know, held on the highest pedestal in any form. 
And I'm just so proud of these two guys, and I, and I love what they've done. And I can't wait to see what they're going to do in the future. Uh, next week's guest, we have two in each of the next two weeks. I know I, I was going to upload this podcast next week. I'm going to upload it a little bit early. But after this week, I have two very special guests from the 1976 movie The Bad News Bears and The Bad News Bears Breaking Training. Um, I am so psyched for this. Um, I get goosebumps every time I watch The Bad News Bears because it always reminds me of what it was like being a kid and playing baseball. Um, That movie holds a very, very, very special place in my heart. I want to thank you for listening. Um, If you're listening and you enjoy it, please come back. If you're listening and you want to pass it on to a friend, please feel free to do so. Um, The Monday Morning Critic continues to get fantastic guests that are phenomenal storytellers and have phenomenal stories to tell. I'm very proud of that. I'm very proud that they give me an opportunity to let them do that. Um, So next week we have two more special guests for you, which I described Hopefully you'll enjoy that as well. Um, And the Monday Morning Critic will continue to get bigger and better. And I think you'll like what's coming up in the next few months. Thank you for listening. And we will certainly talk soon. Thanks.